Hey, welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm Paul Gillette, and joining me are co-host James Lincoln and Christopher Palomares. Hello. Uh, Heidi ho. Heidi ho. Heidi ho. <laughs> hello. Got an interesting uh, show. This first segment, we're speaking with Sarah Kelly. Now, Sarah Kelly has a uh, a project. She's doing a uh, independent film. It's called Model Citizens. It's Fascinating. She's delving into our hobby. So, you know, Sarah, Chris and I, we met you at the uh, Proto West meet about uh, a month or so ago, and you looked like such a normal person to want to be doing this. So I wanted to tell us a little bit about who you are and what led you up to this project. What motivated you and where are we headed with it? Well, uh, thank you for having me on the show. I'm very happy to be here. And I was happy to meet you at the Prototype uh, Modelers event at the end of uh, March in San Bernardino. I'm based in San Diego. Um, I'm a journalist by trade, and I don't know how normal I am. Uh, my background is in the alternative press. Before 19, uh, actually, before 2008, I was in Philadelphia where I was executive editor of the Philadelphia Weekly, an alternative weekly newspaper. I was there for about 15 years, so my background is definitely covering the alternative side of news and looking a little bit differently at conventional news stories, stories that were covered traditionally and hadn't really gotten a lot of coverage in different, sort of more interesting aspects of the story. We were able to go into more depth into stories. I did a lot of coverage of city council in Philadelphia, uh, prison system. I actually covered death row in Pennsylvania, did a lot of feature reporting, and I'm always looking for a good story. Right now, as of 2008, um, I'm in San Diego where I teach full-time. I actually run the journalism undergraduate program at National University, and I teach all online. I'm still working as a journalist, but this is my own personal project. It's supported by my work, my workplace, but it's not financially supported. They're happy that I'm doing it, but this is something that's a personal passion. As a San Diegan, I live pretty close to one of the best model railroad museums around, and that's in Balboa Park, and that's the San Diego Model Railroad Museum. And I visited a couple years ago with the masses during their kind of pre-holiday event where they open the doors to everyone. I was just charmed immediately. I didn't have a background in model railroading. I've always loved miniatures. I've always loved creating stories. I've always loved people who have passion, a passion for something or people who have great stories or just interesting characters. And I was immediately charmed in going through the museum, and I thought, boy, there really should be a there should be a book or there should be a film about this. And I immediately, when I came home, I started researching it. I was amazed that there hadn't been a movie about it, there hadn't been a documentary, and I thought, I really need to take this on as a subject. And I've grown very immersed in the subject, especially in the last uh, six, seven, eight months. It really uh, started taking off once I started branching out, and one thing led to another, and um, I met a number of people who put me in touch with other people, and now I have a huge list of people I still need to contact and people who are emailing me directly, and there's an endless wealth 
of people and great stories. And I think that I could do this forever. I could continue to interview people, but I've set a deadline for myself for um, finishing the film at the beginning of this coming year, 2015, or at the end of this year, 2014, at least finishing shooting and starting the final edit toward the end of the year, the beginning of next year. I've been updating um, my interviews with short vignettes and little one, two, three-minute um, intros to some of the people I've been interviewing on my website, but that's not the final project. The final project, like you say, is a feature-length independent film that I hope to uh, go enter into as many film festivals as possible in the uh, coming year, probably starting at about the end of this year, the beginning of next year. How long do you think this is going to be? You said feature length, 90, 120? Um, 90 minutes, the, the traditional length, 90-minute feature length film. So that's part of the challenge in putting this together is this is going to be for a mainstream film audience. And a lot of what I've done so far has gotten into a little bit more detail and depth than I'm probably going to be getting into for the whole feature because there are a lot of uh, people who I think will be interested in the subject matter but aren't going to know a lot of the nuts and bolts, a lot of the specific, really detailed technical information that I know is of interest to people maybe who will go to my website, review a video that's two or three minutes long that uh, is about, for instance, the future of model railroading. That's really for the model railroading community. But I think this has a larger audience in a broader capacity. And uh, I think I'll definitely have to focus on a few specific individuals in more depth instead of going into too much technical detail. Okay, so the type of people that you planned on interviewing, what were they? When you were conceptualizing this, who did you think you would be, you know, interviewing, getting to know, and then has that changed? Has that morphed? the more you get into it? That's a really interesting question. It has morphed, and it's very hard to define the community as one thing in particular because, as you know, um, any community is diverse and has its own interests and its own reasons for being involved. And um, there are definitely people who share commonalities, and there are a, a number of people I've talked to who are very interested in um, the layouts, for instance, to do, do, doing um, the, the uh, trees or doing the grass on the layout or the building. That might be a slightly different mindset than the people who are really interested in running the trains or the scratch builders, uh, people who I've, worked, uh, who I've talked to who work from scratch, maybe with a PVC pipe, end up making beautiful models in very technical, good detail based on um, a very good knowledge uh, basis, uh, research, a lot of research into the actual equipment that they're modeling and a lot of precise hand-to-eye coordination. There's somebody who I interviewed who's a scratch modeler. He's an um, aerospace engineer. So there are, there are a number of people who are very highly technically skilled who are able to apply those skills 
to building and to running trains. And there are other people I've met who have been kind of more artistically inclined and who really like the, the landscaping and who really like the um, you know, running the trains and doing the artistic uh, aspect. Uh, and a lot of people seem to really enjoy the social life that is involved in, in um, working with a club. I've talked to a number of people at the same club, um, at different clubs, and each club has a different vibe and a different personality and a different feel. And it's really interesting talking to people who are involved in different clubs that maybe are different gauges. Uh, the S gauge modelers, for instance, very different from the O gauge, Angels Gate model railroad club in los angeles is my first o-gauge club that i talked with uh, where i went and talked to people and it was really interesting having heard about the different gauges in the different communities and then going and visiting them thinking oh o-gauge is a toy is a toy gauge these the people who are involved in in o-gauge as i had been told um are not are not doing technical detailed modeling and then I go to the club and I realize oh that's not really the case that what had been put in my head as somebody who does not know natively know, know about this world I'm discovering everything for the first time so I'm going I'm going only on what I've been told and then discovering later the nuances that I didn't know about or that I wasn't told and that you can't really tell, that you really have to experience firsthand to, to see it in action, to realize what motivates people, what keeps them interested. And a number of the people I've talked to are also, they've opened up their worlds a little bit into the other kinds of things they do, like restoring instruments or uh, teaching, or there was a there's a Disney animator who works at one of the model railroad clubs, and it's interesting to me how each club has a different level of seriousness with which it works. Like some are very casual and laid back, and then other clubs are very specific in the way they operate, and they have very rigid rules about how they run trains and when they run them and who does what when and um, others are a lot more freeform so I've experienced a pretty wide gamut so far but probably not near I feel like I could be researching this and visiting model railroad clubs for decades to come my real uh, lack here the hole in my knowledge is beyond the West. I've been pretty much focused on the West so far okay. because I'm in San Diego. I do plan to go um, to the NMRA National Conference Convention in Cleveland in the summer and hopefully take some side trips. I've talked to a couple people who are involved in uh, modeling on the East Coast, so I do have to branch out into the what's going on in the East to give kind of a more diverse picture of the world. But it's been fascinating to me, and I think that it's important for people who are very involved in the world to realize how interesting it really is to outsiders, because sometimes I think when we're all involved very closely in our own worlds, we forget what it looks like to other people or that other people can be as interested and engaged in it 
as as we are. And sometimes people ask me, what, you know, why why are you interested in this? Is this a do you have an ulterior motive? Are you a spy? <laughs> um, and the fact that I'm female makes it even more suspicious. But honestly, people I've talked to about this, even as a, on a casual basis, like my doctor, for instance. I'll mention it, and they'll be just as charmed as I was in saying, you know, they'll think it's a really interesting and kind of quirky, offbeat idea, but there's really a natural interest there that people might not understand just at it, on the face level, on the face, uh, on the face of it. Okay. Well, you mentioned when you go back to Cleveland, because I was going to ask, you know, um, is this going to be a countrywide or, you know, just uh, West Coast? Because Mr. Lincoln runs with a group up in New England that has some of the uh, premier modelers uh, up there, guys like Mike Rose, uh, Mike uh, Scotty Mason, oh, Mike Confalone. So, yeah, if you go that far, you're, Jimmy's – You're uh, more, than, more than welcome to come up to Boston. Oh, I'd love yeah, to. Eight hours on uh, I-90, you're there. I would love and, to. And uh, one of the great layouts, uh, now I can't think of his name. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, Dick Elwell. Dick Elwell, uh, one of the great home layouts, uh, really, um, is in Massachusetts, although it's t- the the opposite end. It's about as far away from anything that you can get in Massachusetts, but. Beautiful country. Oh, you mentioned uh, Mike Confalone. I mean, yep. we've got at the magazine, we have his videos, we have his his ebook and stuff. So, I mean, he is a recognized, accomplished modeler. And, you know, I was going to swing back to when you were told, what you were told about O Gage was not incorrect, um, believe it or not. But the problem is, uh, because I am in a splinter group of O scale. See, there's O gauge and O scale. And when people speak to you about O gauge, they're normally talking about people who are into the toy train line now, three rail stuff. And then there's O scale. But a lot of people don't understand there's O scale and O gauge and that it's different and that people are really into. It's not line L. It's it's just big trains, and people are very serious about the modeling. So the information was not technically correct. I mean, technically incorrect, but it can be com- very confusing to someone who who, who doesn't know the inc- intricacies of the, particularly the O scale gauge Pro Row 48 world. Well, that's there, there really is a lot of uh, breakdown on on the scales, isn't there, Jim? Yes, yes, um, yeah, and what I don't quite understand, and I apologize, hopefully you can cut this out, uh, Paul, I don't know what it is, I start talking, and the dogs start squeaking the toys. Well, that's okay, people are used to getting updates <laughs> from Brutus and... Uh, no, it's Titus, Peter. this is Harrison, and Harrison never plays with anything, and now he decides he wants to squeak his Snoopy, I... I I'm sorry. That's okay. This is what happens all, all the time, Kathy. <laughs> but Sarah, this is what happens all the time. Is is my dogs decide they want to play with their toys only when I'm talking on the podcast? 
What's that Price. Put a mic on them. We'll we'll get uh, their opinion on this. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, and and it is interesting. You're right. There's very the personalities are um very varied, and each club is different, and each group is different, and uh, you know the different meets that you go to. I mean, like a a, a, a prototype modelers meet is a totally different vibe than, say, going to the NMRA convention. It's too vastly, and I won't say diametrically opposed, but vastly different mindsets to what's being done. And you're very correct about what most of us are in. for. In, although we enjoy the modeling, we enjoy the fellowship even more. Um, yes. Well, you, your mention of O gauge and O scale is a very good example of what the fine line that I'm walking here and not wanting to get too technical here because I am not by any means an expert. I'm learning a lot, but this is, this is not my uh, background and it's not something that I know a lot about aside from what I've learned in interviews in the last year and a half. Um, And that's really not, what I hope no, to that, do. No, no, no. I would not want to put put that upon the world for all the money in the, all, you know, all the money in the world. I mean, it's just all I all I was saying was that what the person told you was not technically incorrect. You know, so I, I understand where you're coming from, Sarah. It just I was trying to explain that the person who told you that was not incorrect. The problem is, is that people don't understand what is going on and it, it but you know and it's like it's it, it's just technicalities and in, in you know spe, you know specifics of that even people who are model railroaders don't understand and i didn't understand it until i started getting into o scale proto 48 actually but it's you know those are way more detailed than anybody really needs to know in this in an hour and a half movie However, I've also talked to people who are proudly toy modelers or people yep. who run toy trains, and they say they're toy enthusiasts, mm-hmm. and that's something that they're proud of. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's a disparaging term, although Correct. sometimes I notice that sort of prejudice from the people I, I talk to, uh, and not in a real serious way, obviously, but against um, maybe any anyone who's doing something too different from what they're doing. Um, it's just kind of like, um, I imagine it's like sports. It's like following a team. You want to root for your own group and your own um, style and your own way of doing things. But I think it's the passion and the seriousness with which people talk about these intricate levels of detail that is one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by this world. The fact that people are so serious about such levels of detail. Um, There aren't a lot of things in this world in which people feel that kind of serious commitment to things being correct. And I think that's fascinating. I, I do, though, think that this is not um, exclusive to model railroading. I'm sure that there are other groups 
in which people feel the same dedication to um, serious, accurate representation of their work. Yes. No, I, I've seen it in other pastimes that way, not necessarily. I'm not really – well, you know what? Uh, the different modelers, the IPMS stuff, which you may or may know what that is, and it's the International Plastic Modelers Society. I guess that's what it is. They're extremely serious, uh, and their modeling is out of this world good. One of the things that we've talked about on this show and it's been talked about, the nice thing about model railroading and why – Probably everybody you've spoken to will say it's the greatest hobby in the world. And you say, well, of course you're going to say that. It's your favorite hobby. But because it incorporates all the good things out of various hobbies into one, and you get your models, somebody who makes a magnificent uh, model of a, a tiger tank, for instance, they can build this perfect model that was absolutely accurate for the you know, Tiger number 319 in this particular battalion on this particular day, and it's absolutely accurate. They put it into a diorama, and that's all they can do with it. And yet, with model railroading, you can you can have that type of detail in your models, and yet you can play with them like a role-playing game. And that's what a lot of people aspire to do, and that's why it, a lot of people would say it's the greatest hobby is because it, it combines a lot of things into one. I'll try to not monopolize the conversation either. Well, no, it's it's, it's good points. And, Sarah, there's uh, you mentioned about the, the community uh, when you talk to groups and so forth. Down just in the L.A. area in Bellflower, there's a model railroad uh, – store called uh, Railmasters, and the last Saturday in every month, the owner, Jeff, uh, brings in donuts and pastries and segues to pizza, and he brings in extra folding chairs, and he sends his email blast out and invites people to come in, just, you know, look around, you know, buy what you need, but also just sit down and, uh, you know, he, he builds a sense of community. It's really neat. I, I see a, a need for that, and a lot of the people I've talked to so far have really lamented the the loss of a number of hobby shops in mm -hmm. recent years, and that's something that I'm hoping to focus at least a, a short video on in the next few weeks, talking to Fred Hill the uh, Whistle Stop in Pasadena, which is a famous oh, yeah. place down here in this area. And there are a number of them still remaining around the country, I'm sure, but there aren't the numbers that there used to be. In, and um, it's a real loss to the community. And I've heard a lot of different theories as to the reason why, you know, obviously the Internet has driven a lot of these small businesses out. But I have heard a lot of ideas about why hobby shops are still relevant and could work well and offer a unique experience. And this isn't just limited to hobby shops, but this is, you know, small mom and pop shops that there is definitely a need to talk to people, to see 
um, see these trains, to see what you're going to buy in person, to talk to an expert, to see it run, to be part of that commu community of knowledge that you don't get when you buy on eBay or you buy on Amazon. And um, that sense of community, there's definitely a longing for that, not just in model railroading, but across at least the United States, and I think that's coming back, and I think people are beginning to appreciate this small, personalized community that we're kind of lacking, and hopefully some of these model shops uh, that are on the edge will, uh, these hobby shops will stick around and maybe new ones will come come into existence, and the communities that I've Talk, where I've talked to a number of people, they're going strong, but there's always that concern that, hey, you know, we're a bunch of old guys and we're not going to be around forever. We've got to bring in some new members and younger people. And I see, I've talked to a few younger people. I want to talk to more young people. But there's there's definitely a split in the people I've talked to as to whether the hobby is going to continue to grow if new people and young people are going to enter it or if it's going to become something else or become more specialized or go away and if that is if there's a risk of the hobby eventually going away a lot of people are very sad about that and a lot of people almost take kind of a, a religious view toward conversion and, and and some people disagree with that, but a number of people who I've talked to, um, most of them are just happy that people are paying attention and people are interested and think that more people need to know about this world because if they if more people knew, more people would get involved and there would be more of an assurance that this will continue into the future, and that for that to happen. You know, there has to be young people. There have to be women. Obviously, there aren't a lot of women involved. I'm interviewing one. Um, more minorities, more people from different communities. And the good thing about the internet is that it's made it, uh, you know, made it easier to communicate around the world and spread the word to people who might not have known, even known, there was such a thing as model railroading. So that's the the plus side of the internet too. And you know, I'm not going to be advocating one side or the other, but I do see this passion in people feeling the need to pass the torch to a, a new generation. Hey, Sarah, this is Chris Palomares. I have something to add to that. Um, a, a lot of the guys just don't know how to interact on the computer, and a lot of the young guys, I, I just have this uncanny knack for attack, um, attracting young people and talking to them and engaging them in conversation. And just I don't know this, that I would brag about that. Chris. Well, know you know, hey, they're looking for mentors, and they're the, the likelihood of them going up to a curmudgeon and talking to them and getting excited about trains <laughs> is very low. So when you see a kind of like a thirty-something or kind of a, a Generation X guy into model trains, you, you you just end up with a you know returning kind of to your own sort of personal entrance into model trains, at least for myself. Um, I, I, I know a lot of, a lot of guys from 16 all the way up to 28 and they're, they're hungry for stuff and they're extremely knowledgeable and they're on the net and they know how to use it in ways never dreamed possible. When I started modeling, it was a completely different animal. 
uh, you were limited to the knowledge that you would receive in magazines once a month. And now they've monopolized this knowledge on the Internet. They can go onto these websites that have photos of trains and just go through each one. So for being so young as they are, they know a lot, uh, a lot more than a lot of guys give them credit for, actually. And um, there's always this sort of overtone, oh, I wish kids would be in it. Well, they're in it. <laughs> you just can't see them from your basement, you know. you got, <laughs> you got to go to where they're out. They're out, uh, you know, looking at gen sets and, you know, some of the newer locomotives that these guys don't have any sort of um, love for, really. And you, you just got to know where to look, and you'll find these guys. that they, they don't really interact with some of the um, more honorary older types, <laughs> I found out. But, uh, no, they're there, and they're excited to do the hobby. Well, I think you bring up a good point about PR, and this is something I've talked to a few modelers about and people who are involved in the model railroading press. The issue of of how model railroading is portrayed to the world doesn't really do it any favors in that the images, for the most part, are uh, are not as exciting, not as dynamic. You don't see young people depicted as much as uh you know it's mostly confirming the people the older mostly older communities who are involved and maybe if we spice it up a little bit bring a little bit more uh dynamism and you know that's part of what I'm trying to do is to show that there's there's more here than most of us see um, more than the industry puts out there, that this is there. There are younger people who are interested. There's exciting stuff happening here. There's stuff that can compete with um, with gaming. You know, young people are into gaming. There's a lot of very um, multimedia interesting sorts of things that that people can do on their smartphones and on their iPads. And it's an exciting world if only people. If, you know, we have the responsibility to put it out there and let people know that it's that it, it exists. You can um, access a very interesting world. Um, let's put a kind of a, a younger, more dynamic face on it when we can. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point about gaming. I really think that it's not competition against gaming. It's a matter more of embracing gaming because, like, what Jim brought up before that you kind of treat it as sort of like a supply and demand game. I, I mean, that's vastly more interesting already right there to uh, a younger audience. And it's just a matter of engaging them and kind of pointing them into the directions that's more to their interests. And I, I think it's, you know, I think there's people out there that are, that like trains that just don't even know where to start with some of this stuff. And being in the industry, you know, I'm always, like, trying to figure out ways to bring in people and kind of get into other people's heads and sort of show off uh, different dynamic um, ranges of the hobby that maybe not everyone has really heard about or exposed to. So, um, yeah, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly that, that there's a lot more to it than um, – the conventional press or maybe uh, the industry has really alluded to. And that's just sort of, you know, maybe, maybe through time kind of it'll come out more. And as uh, the, the younger generation has more of a say in like, well, what's of interest to them that 
the manufacturers will start becoming savvy to that and go like, oh, okay, well, this is what we're going to start shooting for too, you know. Well, I think it's interesting. You know, I worked on this for a number of months. The first few months that I was um, working trying to get interviews, it was really difficult for me to get started because there was a lot of suspicion. And I think, you know, I've noticed that there, there's no, I mean, obviously there's no one personality type, but I have noticed there are a number of people who, um, may have wanted the publicity, but did not necessarily embrace what I was doing because they weren't really sure what I was up to. And it took a while to kind of get up to speed here and to start having people open doors for me because there are a number of people who just weren't interested and because they they didn't know what I was doing or maybe they're not the most social people in the world or, you know, I'm coming from a different world. It's not something they were used to, but I did get a a number of, um, I would say, ignored emails and phone calls. And um, that's that certainly didn't, um, it didn't keep me back, and I didn't take it personally, but I've noticed that I just have to keep kind of pressing ahead, and I've found people along the way who have been very encouraging and supportive and have put me in touch with other people, and that's really the only way I've been able to do this is talking to one person who is very friendly and open who said, for instance, oh, you need to talk to this person, you need to talk to the other person. But not everybody, even in people in positions of relative power, um, for instance, there's an event, and I won't mention the particular event in which I um, wanted I wanted to attend and document it, and I'm having a hard time um, getting approval for it. Um, and it could be a very positive thing for the organization, but um, the email, one email in response that I've received in response was very questioning of what I'm doing and wanted a lot of detail and it was kind of negative in that I don't think it was in a um, unpleasant way, but just in a way that just wanted so much detail to the point where they kind of missed the big picture of what I was trying to do when I mentioned that I'm doing a film um, they wanted to know web hits. They wanted to know, is this going to be on YouTube? Is this going to be, what's, you know, who, who are your subscribers? And it's a very online world, but I, I guess there's kind of a dubiousness that people can't imagine that this, there's a larger interest, there's a bigger world out there in which people um, can give them a higher profile, people who are interested um, in the mainstream community, people who would watch a movie for 90 minutes on this. And it's right. it, it's just – it's been an interesting journey, and a lot of people have uh, – you know, I've noticed that s- – a lot of people have been very friendly and encouraging and a number of people. I think part of the personality type, and I understand it myself, is kind of an introverted personality that makes it harder to to publicize something or to right. yeah, to move something ahead in yeah. a public way. Well, uh, it's one of the reasons why I said, you know, some of these guys, they can't really see beyond their basement and they can't see you know the youth coming into the hobby of course they'll complain well hey i'm not seeing any young people well <laughs> you need to get out to 
to actually see it. But and that's a scary time for them too because they they get used to their their own sort of um, really it is a, a miniature world really that they've created. So when when they're so used to sort of um, setting the rules and setting the direction for the layout and the um, you know the the other sort of um, wiring standards and the technicalities behind it, 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 it it's so consuming that you know stepping outside of that is kind of hard to do. You know, well, and that control I, I, Chris, issue. I, I think it. Um, it, it hmm, how do I phrase this? There's also a in the mainstream in the mainstream of people i'm going to say it has been uh the view of model railroading and view of model railroaders is that they're a bunch of nut jobs it's funny you play with terrains and seeing somebody coming from the outside saying hey i want to do a movie somebody may look at that and say okay they want to come in and make fun of us and I'm not obviously I'm not saying that you are, but I'm just saying that their view of it may be that way. For instance, I'm going to give uh, when uh, Rod Stewart was interviewed, I believe I don't remember which show it was on. Um, I think it was Jimmy Kimmel, and he showed. Oh, you know, he's talking to Rod Stewart, and he says, "Oh," and he pulls out the first time Rod Stewart was on the cover. His model railroad layout was on the cover of Model Railroader magazine. He says, oh, you know, you were on the cover of Model Railroad Magazine, and people in the audience laughed. And Rod Stewart looked at the audience, and he said, what are you laughing for? I'm very proud of that Model Railroad. And it shut everybody up. But that's the view that a lot of people, I think, believe that the mainstream has of Model Railroaders is that all you want to do is make fun of us. You're not trying to see what we're all about. It's, you know, you're trying to ridicule us because it's happened to many of us through our lifetime. It happened to me when I was younger. Uh, so, you know, the idea of being interested in trains, you know, you're always like, oh, you're just some wacko. And people are not going to be, some people are not going to per se be very trusting of someone coming from the outside who they have no idea who it is, who has no... um Unless you have somebody behind you, you know, supporting you saying, hey, talk to this person, she's okay. Unless you have that, there are some in the community that will would be not very trusting and want to know where you coming, where you're going with this. And I could see how they might do that. Uh, no, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying I could see how that perception might be there. That makes sense. Happily, I've I've experienced just exactly that. People who have kind of paved the way for me or opened mm. doors for me by um, letting putting me in touch with other people and building that trust over time. And right. you're right. I mean, coming in for to any community, you know, in my background as a reporter. It's the same in any community. You have to build trust before you're allowed access. You you have to build, you know, this is a lot more 
uh, the stakes are a lot lower than they were, for instance, in the prisons. Um, But it's the same story. You know, you can't just be somebody who spends a couple minutes or a few hours on something and then once and done, you write your story or you do your video and and you're through with it. The thing that I've committed myself to here is making sure that I spend enough time. And it's something that I think is key and to doing any kind of long-form quality journalism, documentary, filmmaking project. It just is mostly a matter of putting in the time, building that trust, and becoming kind of ingrained in the world enough to know where the stories are, not necessarily the technical details. But that's something that I've really committed myself to here. And this is something, this is why I'm hesitant to give myself a deadline. It's helpful that I don't have anyone breathing down my neck asking me to finish this because I don't have any outside funders. I'm doing this myself on my own time with my own money. So that's really helpful. I can take my time. I visit people numerous times, and sometimes that's surprising to people because I'll I'll spend a few hours at a club, and then I'll come back in a few weeks, and I'll come back in a few more weeks, and I'll spend I'll go to another venue or I'll go to a show, I'll see people numerous times, and that's something that really makes me feel good. It makes the people who are involved in this feel good. I think. Like, for instance, going to that um, show in San Bernardino where we met, um, it was really nice walking through the crowds there and seeing a number of people I have interviewed or I've talked to several times and feeling like, oh, I'm not exactly in this community, but I'm a known person in this community, and there's a level of trust that I've built. And that takes time. It's not something you can do quickly. It's something that has to take place over weeks and, and in my case, months and months and months. Um, But it's worth it because nobody's going to talk to you and really be honest and give you a good interview and give you good detail just in a few minutes if you're in a hurry and you just want to wrap it up and do your uh, quick news report and that's it. This is something that needs time this needs to i mean i have a sense of what the structure of the final movie but i can't know for sure what exactly it's going to look like until i feel like i've done enough research i've spent enough time with enough people so it's something that's definitely evolving and it's something that really requires that human element And then in terms of just kind of switching gears a little bit, in terms of that trust um, or the lack of trust, because I've definitely heard that, uh, you know, the idea that people think that I'm going to make fun of them or that this community, um, you know, questioning why I would be interested in this community – I I would identify as a geek myself in a different way, and I know a number of people who are very geeky in different kinds of areas, in different interests, and it's funny, I was just at WonderCon over the weekend, which is kind of like Comic-Con, a smaller version. It's a pop culture um, convention 
comic books, pop culture. And there was a group of modelers there that model R2-D2s. It's the R2 Modelers Group. <laughs> really? No kidding. And they reminded me a lot of model railroad clubs, and they had the R2-D2 models that were going around the Anaheim Convention Center and making the familiar <laughs> noises, and they're radio-controlled. And I talked to, we talked to a couple of the guys, and there, were very, there was a sim- similar level of focus and detail, and they were talking a little bit about how you build a model and how much money it costs. And this is cool. I mean, there were thousands of people at this conference. You know, this is something that in the last 10 or 15 years with the explosion of the Internet and video games, this is a there's a lot more interest and a lot more awareness in these kinds of things, in model building, in really specific um, you know, communities that are interested in, in characters or in worlds or in TV shows or in comic books, and it's not as unusual as it used to be, and there's less of a pressure, I think, for everyone to feel like they have to fit into the mainstream and be um, like everyone else and watch the same TV shows and watch the same movies. There's a lot more diversity. There's a lot more room for indie film, for instance. You know, there's there are a lot more niches here to fill, and I think that's a great thing for anybody who's interested in something um, that's a little bit off the beaten track because there's definitely room for it these days, and there's an ability to do it a lot more cheaply and a lot easier than it used to be. So it's it's a great time for this kind of thing. Hey, Sarah, you know, talking to you about uh, the documentary, I just remembered when I was growing up, uh, I was about 16, I saw a documentary called Routine Pleasures, and it was from a gentleman from France who ended up being a teacher over at UC California, I think San Diego. And this is about 1975, 1980 time frame. And he did a, a documentary, and, he, and it included uh, Manny Farber, one of the local artists around San Diego. And um, I, I'd highly recommend for you to take a look at it. I'll definitely check it out. I'm not familiar with that. But I think there have been a number of good documentaries in recent years about all kinds of communities that people wouldn't necessarily have thought about in that much detail. Um, Spellbound comes to mind about spelling bee champions. That's something that wouldn't seem particularly interesting to most people. It was a fascinating, well-done documentary. I think that any community can be made, you know, can if – the people who are doing it, who are doing the filmmaking or doing the writing or whatever it is, spend enough time with that community and find those human stories. I think they're everywhere. Absolutely. When you go into the whistle stop and you look around at the at the store, because when I'm in California, uh, I always go in there, but you'll see diesel air horns on the on the shelves up. I mean, they're display units, and some of them are quite large. There's a group of people who collect those and get together in the middle of nowhere because they are allowed and operate them. So what you're uncovering and what you've alluded to and Chris has is the compassion and the passion that people have for, you know, model railroads, R2-D2, uh, model airplanes, whatever. And 
I'll admit, when I was younger, I used to snicker at that. But then as, you know, maturity brings about an appreciation for what people do, and you all of a sudden begin to empathize, and then you get caught up in the vortex yourself. And next thing you know, you're uh, knee-deep in a hobby, and you understand the, the passion someone else has for his hobby. And so, yeah, I think your uh, your uh, film could uh, be eye-opening in and of itself just to that, going back to what uh, Jim said about uh, Rod Stewart being, you know, people chuckling at first. And then they found out he was serious and very committed to it, and all of a sudden it had perspective. It had credibility. So I hope you're very successful at that. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm really focusing on making sure that people tell their own stories. And it shouldn't be, you know, I'm the venue, I'm the vehicle, but it's not me. You know, so, you know, in, in editing, I can't show every single thing. I've got hundreds or thousands of hours of who knows how, how much um, raw footage. I really want to make sure that people are representing themselves and telling them their own stories. And, and yeah. I think it's I'm really behind in my editing because it takes so long. But um, my on my website where I've been showing a couple minutes at a time, every single person so far, hopefully this continues, everyone who's been featured has liked the representation and they're just being themselves. So, um, you know, I want to make sure that I'm – you know, part of the reason why I have this website is so that people aren't – well, people know what I'm doing as I'm moving forward and building some kind of reputation and credibility, and also so that people aren't surprised in two years from now or in, in a year from now or six months from now when this, a movie comes out and they have no idea what it's going to be. I like giving people a taste of things as I move forward so – they can understand a little bit of what I'm doing and maybe develop a little bit of trust and realize that I'm I'm I I come I do I come with uh, good intentions and I definitely want to feature their voices and their personalities, not my viewpoint of who they are. Well, go ahead and just tell everybody what is the website. Give them the address. It's modelcitizensmovie.com. And that's all one word, modelcitizensmovie. Modelcitizensmovie, all one word, dot com. And okay. that's um, – right now there are a number of videos on it, and hopefully I'll be able to update it a little bit more regularly. I've been a little slow in getting the, the videos up there, but I've got a few um, up there right now. I've put one – um, one up the other day, and this is somebody who's actually a, uh, owns a private rail car. This is another thing that I don't want to go off into a, ter a different tangent here, but I've noticed with a lot of the people I've been interviewing about model railroading, I've run into a lot of rail fans too, people who are interested in, in full-size railroads and railroading. And the latest video I put up, is about um, Norm Orfall, who calls himself a one-to-one -one size uh, modeler because he models <laughs> his own full-size rail car. And, um, you know, one of the issues that I've been trying to tackle as I've moved forward is, like, 
is there a difference between full-size and model railroading? It seems to be bleeding together, but on the site there's probably a little bit more of a representation of full-size modelers or people who are rail fans um, than there will be in the final uh, movie in which it will be focused primarily on modelers themselves. Although I'm finding as I'm getting emails and people are getting in touch with me, anyone who has an interesting story, if they're a rail fan or not, I'll go talk to them. I'll maybe do an interview with them. I'll go to an event. It doesn't mean it's going to make it into the final film. Um, but mm -hmm. it, but if they have an interesting story, I'll try to feature it on the website. I don't know. It's been my experience, and uh, the guys can give their view, but every model railroader I know and I come across in the, in the store, there are also rail fans and vice versa. If I'm on the, at uh, Kingman watching BNSF go across the desert, you know, 99% of the time, the guys that you strike up a conversation with, well, yeah, I model. I'm out here collecting data you know, for weathering or for painting, for operations. So I always kind of looked at it as going hand in hand. In hand. Is that the way it is up there, uh, Jimmy Boy? Uh, I would say, and I've said this before, that when I started, because I worked for Freight Railroad before I worked uh, with the commuter rail, uh, I was a model railroader first. I, w I was a model railroader who happened to work for the railroad. And uh, I was a real, you know, for years I was more of a rail fan than a modeler. Um, and you get, I would get grief for that. Uh, you know, why would you want to go do that? You know, but and my commentary was always, you know, if if I had a '69 Camaro and I had it in my garage working on it, and I drove around, you know, and I fixed up muscle cars and I did, that people would be cool with that. But, you know, you as, as soon as you say, hey, you know, I'm interested in watching trains, oh, you, you know, that's just weird. <laughs> and, and, I, and I was like, you know something? I says, to me, just logically, as a guy, uh, I says, you know, a car weighs 3,000 pounds, maybe, 4,000 pounds. A car weighs 4,000 pounds. Uh, you know, an object going 100 miles an hour a 4,000-pound object going 100 miles an hour is vaguely impressive. A 20-million-pound object with 16,000 horsepower going by you at 40 is way more impressive. You know, you feel it. You know, when you're rail fanning and you're trackside and you've been into Hatchapi, probably, or at least I'm, I'm guessing Chris has, and you're standing next to 10, you know, 5 or 10 SD45s, as they go by you with 20 million pounds worth of coal train, that's impressive. They may not be going fast, but it's it's impressive. It's a lot of rolling mass. Absolutely. It's a, it's a lot of rolling mass. And I, I think one of the keys to me switching to Proto 48 was the fact I worked for the railroad and I was up close and personal with a lot of these things. I, I'm a self-described track guy and – while I'm not really interested in the equipment that I deal with day to day, I'm still interested in track. I take pictures of track. I measure track. I measure all these bits and pieces because I design parts so that people can have them to build accurate models. 
Uh, so, you know, that, that required the nice thing about working for the railroad is no one's going to come up to, you know, they say, well, well, he works here. You know, they don't even bother you. You know, if somebody comes and says anything, hey, I work here. Oh, okay. I'm not trespassing because I work here. <laughs> it, yeah. It's very useful to my rail fanning. <laughs> uh, well, the same thing. When I worked in the industry, that's what motivated me to get beyond the Tyco toy set and, and uh, that kind of stuff because I went, good grief, these details like grab iron, these aren't right. And that's when I started cutting up cars that became, you know, became anal about having the right details and all that stuff on it. Chicken or the egg, but that's what drove me. It's funny you mentioned that the the anal or the OCD aspect, and that's that's something <laughs> yeah, we're OCD. that, that um, I've obviously encountered a number of times. The one of the more fascinating things I'm sure you're all familiar with is the people who focus very closely on a particular year or a particular day, even in a specific railroad at a specific time and place. And I've interviewed you must, an, you must have you must have interviewed Jack Burgess. Yeah, there you go. There I you have go. not actually really, <laughs> <laughs> but I'd love oh. to. I'm sure. But um, it's funny because uh, you know a number of the people who are very accurate historically and who really feel like they need to do the research and need to get it right are a little, as you would imagine, overwhelmed by the scope of what's out there and what's available and what they would have to know in order to cover anything broader than a specific day or a specific year and a specific line. So a number of people I've talked to and I've interviewed um, focus on that day or focus on that year in yeah. Santa Fe, the Santa Fe Railway and April 1954 or something like that in a particular pass or a particular place because the whole sure. world is so immense that the only way to maintain sanity, knowing that they have to know every single thing there is to know about what they model, they can't, you know, for a lot of people, they have to know everything there is to know. So they have to narrow it or else it just is too overwhelming. And I thought I found that to be a really fascinating aspect of the world. Yeah, they turn into oh, Veeger otherwise, like from that Star Trek episode, <laughs> trying to look yeah. for all human knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I'm back in the store, you know, working on the display railroad and somebody comes up and they have a question because they want to buy a, the right car, the right locomotive, and I'll ask them, well, what time frame are we working on? And if it's something I don't know, I'll go, well, look, let's go Google this. And so we'll walk up to where the the cash register and everything is because there's a, a computer up there that customers can use. And they'll walk up, and right at the last minute, I'll veer over to Bruce, one of the other guys that works there. And I said, this is my Google. <laughs> we don't need a computer. We just asked a question of Bruce. And Bruce says, uh, did this car ever run between, uh, you know, such and such and such and such on a date? And Bruce just, no, that didn't happen for three months after that. And he'll go into this this monologue about it. But it's that passion. He has just devoted himself to learning or knowing everything that there is about 
if it's a railroad, he uh, models. I mean, it's just, oh, no, let me tell you about that. And it's he's just sharing information, but, yeah, I call him my Google. It's interesting to see the compromises that people have to make when they work with other club members or maybe a modular club when they're very detail-oriented when it comes to their own modeling, but they have to actually work with other people who might not share the same exact interests. Especially, That's especially true. with the modular clubs. Well, Chris is in a modular group. He was at the one uh, uh, there in uh, San Bernardino. Yes. And, I mean, an yes. excellent group. Uh, Michael Gross was there. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing is when it comes to era-specific type stuff, we're just so glad to have sort of like a, a nice level of execution on the dirt where – Anything kind of looks good. <laughs> it doesn't matter the era or if there's like a steam locomotive sharing it with like a gen set right next to it. Hey, we're just so glad to be um, enjoying the social aspect of things, um, learning new things from our friends who we set up with, and just breaking down techniques into stuff that we can all use and just uh, uh, enjoying the hobby as like, um, uh, you know, developing new friendships and meeting new people. I mean, that's what we're so happy about, that we overlook any sort of inaccuracy like that. Uh, there are people where it would really bother them a lot, but you find people that it doesn't bother them so much where the the social aspect of it is probably the, the more enticing part of it, you know. One of, uh, one of my friends, me talk about OCD, he cut – a thousand pieces of paper to simulate HO scale mail to put in the RPO slots on the interior of a Walther's car. And I, and I just, I kid him about that. I said, whatever possessed you? He said, well, something needs to go in the slot. I said, how do people see it? He said, well, they get down and they look through the windows. <laughs> and, you know, I'll ask him, uh, well, tell me, Alan, do you have such and such a locomotive? No, that came after my period. I do not entertain that, you know, because I've got SD24s, but I do not have, you know, SD45s or whatever the cutoff point was for 1959. But he appreciates whatever anybody else does. He didn't expect me to cut up a thousand pieces of HO scale mail, which is good because I'm not doing it. <laughs> you know, trust me, there's mail in there. Just pretend. <laughs> and people, and you guys, you know, well, not you specifically. You guys think I'm crazy for designing all the tie plates, the correct tie plates and rail braces and everything for a turnout that's O scale. At least all that stuff, you don't have to stoop down and look through the windows or take the roof off. It's all there. You can see it. Hey, I but don't I think you're crazy. Why you do it. Yeah, I understand why you do it. No. Some people do. Some people do it. It's like, why would you do that? It's, well, at least in O scale, you can see it. Yeah, that's true. That is true. When you're doing So, see, Sarah, we're as uh, fragmented and, uh, as some of the people you're talking with. Well, I've also noticed that those the people who will be as specific in their interests and as rigid sounding when they talk about their own interests are very willing to work with other people and very encouraging and supportive. And no, I haven't met anyone who's had who's given anyone else a hard time for uh, not respecting their own. Uh, 
interests, their own specific interests, and people work well together. I think you're, from what I've seen, it's the companionship, it's the um, experience of working with other people that overrides any specific need to model a year, time, or a place. Sure. And to that point, I mean, I don't work on Saturdays anymore, but I go in typically from uh, store opens at 10 till about 12, 1230 just for the social aspect because the big rush of people is in the morning on a weekend, and that's when the gab fest start. We all, you know, go back to the, the railroad that's under construction. There's something back there that can be fired up and run, and it's just I go for the social. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Well, I found myself um, learning about people on a deeper level than I would have ever imagined. And I think one of the takeaways that I've had, you know, I'm in my 40s, so I'm not particularly young, but I'm a little bit young for the model for most well, – maybe I'm average for a model railroad. Are you allowed to drink? <laughs> Am I allowed to drink? <laughs> Yeah, you're awfully young. I'm in my 40s, so I am allowed. But okay. but I, I I have found that, and you know, certain people, I feel like I never grew up. I feel like I'm still a kid, and it's really nice to see other people who are even older than I am who still see, feel the same way, and they just haven't gotten rid of that feeling. And it's it, it's nice to get to know people well enough to realize that that kid still persists after 60 or 70 years it's all an attitude you know if you if you stay if you keep embracing those things that interested you as a kid you really never get mentally old well and here's another aspect of that is the model railroad is my hobby my wife has other hobbies but the other day she goes you know when i retire in three years she said can i work with you on your model railroad and i said Sure, what do you want to do? She said, well, I think I would like to learn how to build structures. On a given Saturday morning, we have as many husband and wives coming into the store. The guy will migrate over to where the locomotives and the cars are. The, the, uh, his wife will migrate to the wall where all the building kits are, all the people, all the farm animals, all the details, the trees, the scenery. And... It, you know, they're polarized in each direction, but they're working together on the hobby. So it's, I guess it's true. It can bring couples uh, together. You know, good heavens, the kids are gone. And uh, like in our case, the kids live hundreds of or thousands of miles away, and so the grandkids are not around. So it's, it's a common, you know, it's a common bond. It maintains that, that close relationship with your spouse. So. Well, my mom, back in 2008... I guess it was mm-hmm. 2008, 2009, maybe it was 2009. Nearby, Scotty Mason had the Craftsman Structure Show 15 minutes away. We went over there, and she really became interested in building uh, Craftsman Structure Kits at 70 years old. Now, she's – I don't know if you ever – I've ever so, shown you pictures of her, her work, but uh, she you know, has always been craft-oriented through her, her whole life, and she was an expert in color was into um, traditional rug hooking, which is totally different. It's a craft more than a hobby. She took it up. I mean, she she did very well for someone who, you know, who had shaky hands for, you know, getting that, that, that old. And But she was able to – she has some very nice kits that she did. She even scratch-built a structure. I've never scratch-built a structure. 
She's ahead of me. Yeah. I haven't either. Uh, you know, so, and, and she really enjoyed it. You know, and then she had other projects she wanted to do, so she kind of got out of it. But she really enjoyed the structure and the color part of it and, you know, and working along with me and, and modeling together. And, and we had gone rail fanning together several times. She always enjoyed it. She went, she was with into Hatchapi with me. Uh, she had a blast um, doing that, and um, but I always uh, I always really appreciated the fact that she's seventy years old and she took up craftsman structure build, building. So more power to her. Yeah, more power to her. And I think another thing you may want to work on, and this may be a little self serving for us, uh, but you might want to in in relation to the whole hobby shop thing, and you know hobby shops are going away, but one of the big things about hobby shops. Was it was a gathering place, mm-hmm. people that you would come and you'd talk to, and uh, you know clubs as well. But and this has been a pine that you know with the the decline of hobby shop brick and mortar hobby shops, podcasts have kind of filled that void. Um, and there are several model railroading podcasts, uh, of which I'm about I'm involved with just about all of them. Um, Oh, look at you. <laughs> look at me. I, I was I was impressed when I went to iTunes and I noticed, I saw how many there were. I was surprised, pleasantly surprised. And yeah, that's an interesting as, connection that you make between the decline of hobby shops and the increase in, in podcasting. And I think that's why people really like long podcasts. Because they just sit and, you know, and people will go on about what they're doing and, you know, they'll give tips and things in a, you know, an ongoing, you know, shall we say stream of consciousness. And that, you know, you can, you, you drive to work or you're commuting to work or you're going somewhere or you're, you know, it's like I got rid of, uh, I have uh, satellite uh, radio in my car and I let the, uh, the subscription lapse because I never listened to it. I listened to podcasts. I just I, I don't listen to satellite radio. It's like, and they're like, "Well, we'll give it to you for some stupidly cheap price." I said, "I just paid thirty dollars for six months, and I didn't even activate my radio, sir, because I I listen to I listen to Model Railroad podcasts, honestly. So um, it really fits because you know the brick and mortar hobby shops that are remaining are the ones that probably have uh you know are well established they have somebody who you know has a web presence they they do you know mail order they do discounts they do uh you know they have they can see the big picture and what needs to be done they're good businessmen so they're surviving in this climate and but with the demise of the vast majority of them, because there's only one decent hobby shop near me. It's 30 minutes away. Uh, it's a great hobby shop, uh, probably the best around here. And people go and, the, and you chat, you know. You do stand around the, the counter and talk to people, and, you know, that's where you meet. But, you know, failing that, this is nice because I have friends who, I mean, the, uh, I have a project uh, that really was pushed along by someone in Australia. He did all the he did all the heavy lifting and proved that my theory was correct, and showed me that it was correct. And I have bunches of friends in all over the United States, in Australia, in England, 
who, you know, ask me for advice or they'll give me advice and it's like, oh, wow. So one of the things that put uh, one of, another thing that made the whole I was I was really concerned about how I was going to do something. And just in the in the course of a conversation in a uh, podcast. Uh, somebody gave me the idea of what he was doing. He, he showed – well, no, he didn't. He showed a picture of what he was doing. I was like, hey, that's exactly what I need right there. <laughs> it says, how did you do that? He's like, oh, that's just blah, 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 blah. And he's – I will probably never see this man in my entire life. But <laughs> – well, it's really interesting how the Internet has opened doors and connected communities, but at the same time it's being blamed for the demise of the hobby shop. So, you you know, I think there's room for both if, yeah. if people can um, manage and people understand how to use the Internet. Happily, it seems like a lot of people in this community are pretty Internet savvy, so that's that's a really good thing, I think. Not the old curmudgeon, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> but the ones you hear about are internet savvy. I mean, I, I think that in a lot of ways, the the internet is pushing the hobby forward because so many things are much more available. You're it's it's a lot easier to be era specific or day specific or you know you want to. You know, the problem is there's so much information you can get overwhelmed, and that and then you have what's termed analysis paralysis, where you can't even figure out how to start. Because you have so much information that you can't do anything. But then again, like you said, you know, those who are in tune with it are using it as the tool to help them focus on what they're doing. I think the internet is our friend. Okay, and we're okay, going to continue, continue to, uh, to have conversations with Sarah Kelly Sarah and the, uh, the uh, Weeks to Come Project, project progressive, progressive. We'll be touching base with probably, probably maybe June-ish. If you go to, go to the, the Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast, podcast Facebook page, Chris posted a link to, to a movie called Routine, routine Pleasures by Jean-Paul Gore. It's about the Delmar Model Railroad Club that was made back in 1986. I imagine, I imagine there's a lot, there's a lot, lot of parallels between, between what, what Sarah is doing and, doing and what, uh, Jean, uh, Paul Jean Paul did. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Excellent, excellent model, model, model railroad scenery. Good scenery. It's interesting, it's interesting watching, watching uh, what were uh, obviously reworked, reworked Aether and Blue Boxes, especially on diesel, brass, brass uh, and so uh, forth. And so forth. Uh, just uh, interesting, just interesting to see. To go to the so Model Railroad Podcast Facebook page, Facebook page and, click on, and the link. click on the link. I think you'll enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy it. It's actually a criterion and it's on Hulu. Hello, this is Hello, actor, this is actor Michael Gross, Michael and you're Gross, listening. And you're to listening to the Model Railroad, Railroad Hobbyist podcast. Okay, we're joining. Okay, a we're joining a conversation between Chris, 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 Jim, Jim, and I. Started. Started. Uh, unfortunately, uh, somebody, somebody got to turn got on to turn the recorder. On the recorder. Okay, it was me. Okay, it was me. We thought about we thought about recreating, recreating the spontaneity, spontaneity that, that uh, we just missed, uh, we just out, missed on. out on. And the consensus, the consensus was, was it's kind of hard to plan, recreate spontaneity. Kind of seemed kind of intuitive. So hey, hey, here's where the here's where the recorder came on. I promise, I promise, never to do it again. Do it again. The biggest uh, Tyco train that they would have moved, and some people would have just gone all out for it. But mm -hmm. you know, the others might. Nah, not really interested. 
I was more into the line of not really interested. No, so, that's fine too. That's fine yeah. too. You know what? I don't know. You know what? I might have done it had I been there. I probably yeah. would have been like, they're moving at one time. It's kind of like when people were cracked. I was on this 21 day diet plan. <laughs> and they were like, okay. you know, it's it's only 21 days. What's the big deal? And then I went to I went to Nantucket, and I'm getting fed this gourmet food. And I'm like, I'm never gonna be here. I'm never gonna be eat. I'm never gonna have the opportunity to eat this food again. I can always do okay. the diet later. <laughs> hold on, hold on. We need to have what? all this done again. What? Uh, all this conversation done again. Why? With the recorder on. My recorder. You had on. it off. Is yours on? Yeah, Jim? mine's on. But I didn't realize this was part of the show that was being recorded. Well, it wasn't, but it's an interesting conversation. So. Oh boy, me cracking on Chris for not. <laughs> That's right. Just I remember hear crack on again. again. <laughs> yeah. Just fast forward through it. Just you know, turn the volume all the way down, and you know, listen to it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I get a phone call yesterday evening, uh, and it's my wife, and she goes, why weren't you here today? You know, over in Pasadena. And I went, because I'm here. She goes, no, they moved the big boy today. I said, oh, really? She said, yeah. She said, I think they moved it out of Pomona. And I said, well, it's going on the way to Cheyenne, I think. So I said, I didn't know they were moving. She said, well, I figured if you had have known, you would have come here. And she said the news just showed thousands of people at all the crossings and stuff watching this parade go by. Uh, you know, you know, as I think about it, I'm probably with Chris on it to say, you know, if it were under steam itself, that's truly fascinating. But it's a, it's beetoed. I don't know. But, you know, it's really easy for me to say that because I'm 3,000 miles away. Right. And there well, was no the hope at all with me being there. try to play it up, uh, you know, the numbers game a little bit because the lead locomotive was an SD-70M with the 4,014 number. Right. Oh, was yeah. that? No kidding. Then the, the trailing diesel locomotive was, the I believe, the 8444. Really? Yeah. So they did try to hype it up in a way to, you know, generate interest from, um, I guess, the railfan community. And obviously it generated interest because there were thousands of people going along, or maybe thousands is uh, a little bit uh, of an exaggeration. Definitely hundreds. <laughs> so um, No, I think Pam said uh, KTLA or one of them said it was thousands at every crossing. Apparently the no way. There's no way you can have thousands at every crossing. There's not enough room for thousands of people at every crossing. So uh, I don't sure. know the recent standing room only. Yeah, hundreds, perhaps thousands. I doubt it. Yeah, you know, rail fans are climbing trees okay. trying to get down. Yeah, on, so. yeah. <laughs> somehow, somehow, I think the media was hyping it a little bit. Maybe yeah. they were exaggerating. You don't believe in Santa Claus either, do you? No, I don't. Okay, that there's okay that puts your comment in context. Uh-huh. I accept it. So you so okay. How about so 150 to 200 let people? Me, okay, there you go. So so right, let me guess. Right. You believe everything you read on the internet, right? 
Well, if it's on the internet, it's got to well, be true. <laughs> Isn't that international law? Yeah. I think Al Al uh, Gore put that in place when he invented it. Uh huh. Right. Uh huh. You know, they should have moved the four thousand fourteen like at three o'clock in the morning just to get rile up all the foamers that wanted to go along with it. It, it would have went silently in the night. You know, no one uh, would have known it. At no, there would have been four people <laughs> that would have gone. You know, there would have been. Yeah, they're all or they're between the ages of sixteen and twenty. You know, <laughs> that's that, that's right. Yeah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how much I liked it. I would have been like, "That's way too early. I ain't going." Me being me, and kind of uh, you know a little irked about that because we'll never see our beloved SP forty four forty nine up the coast. Um, yeah, I just don't feel like obliged to sponsor their steam at all. You know, um, I, I'm I'm true to the SP, and uh, you know. UP is neat once in a while in short doses, <laughs> you know. You know, the so. UP is really cool when there's one of their locomotives in a train in, like, Air, Massachusetts. Yeah. Then it's yeah. cool. Then it's cool. Wow, yeah. there's UP in Air. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't that, really. That's how, that's how I felt, like, whenever we saw, like, a UP SD40-2 roam its way down the, the SP coastline. I was like, wow, that's unusual. That's kind of cool. Right. All right. That's that's cool. Yeah, yeah, back in the SP days. Now it's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, if I went, it, that's the thing is, I don't think I would want to go to Tehachapi anymore, because I'd go there and it'd be like, this is not my beautiful house. <laughs> yeah, no. this is like, this is like, it's all just UP AC forty four hundred ES forty four gobbledygook. Now, yeah, as a conductor, I love ES forty fours. As a rail fan, except for the, the except for the NS ones, those are nice. You know, the, the the heritage ones. But you know, in fact, I think that the I think that Norfolk Southern should change their paint scheme to the nickel plate scheme, because the nickel plate scheme on those locomotives looks awesome. Um, and they could just change the nickel plate to Norfolk Southern. It would look great. I think. It's just my personal opinion. It'll well, never happen, but. Make another phone call to uh, yep. Mr. Kester and have him uh, talk. Yeah, uh, yep. somehow I don't think that's going to help. <laughs> well, he's a my only comment was that he's a you know he's a dyed in the wool nickel plate guy. So. Well, that may be so, but I don't think he's going to have any pull with the Norfolk Seven. Just be happy that there's enough of a you know a, a, a lightning of the, you know, the management over there that they even did that. And at least they did it right. I mean, they did a much better job than UP did. Um, so. I, I tend to agree with that. The, the, the SP to me was like egregious, you know, I'm like, where's my bloody nose? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's well, like, that's just, yeah. What is it? Daylight color. Oh, what's it? What? <laughs> Like what is this? I don't even know what it is. It's just—it's yeah. an something. artist interpretation of a Southern Pacific paint scheme. Whereas it's at least yeah, it's an Andy Warhol yeah, version. It is, of yeah, it's the Warhol. You know, and, right. and at least all of the schemes, it seemed like whoever was doing it on the Norfolk Southern was kind of like. If this railroad was still here, how would they paint the locomotive? How would they yeah. paint yeah. this? 
And so yeah. everything fits those locomotives quite well. I mean, even everybody said even the Penn Central scheme looks nice. You know, so say too. what you want about Huh? I, it's black with white letters. It's hard to screw. You, you uh, know, they, I, I'd okay. say the Conrail, the big blue. Uh huh. I like that one. That, that, that's something that's kind of familiar to, you know, being out here. A lot of Conrail locomotives would sort of filter their way out here. Yeah. So, I'd love to see that Conrail locomotive make a reemergence out in out in California. That that to me would be worth <laughs> chasing down on yeah. UP or BNSF. I wouldn't care. It would get the spotlight. Yeah, particularly if they could put it on the front. Yeah, yeah, that, that that'd be ideal. Yeah, leading that would be neat. Can't, you know, I would. Yeah, nickel plate the nickel plate locomotive. If I knew if I knew it was somewhere, like if I knew it was going to be up, you know, in air, and knew I could catch it at the tunnel. I mean, I could. I mean, I would pay money to be able to get the nickel plate engine coming out of Hoosick Tunnel pay money if you could find that out. Uh, and that's like getting a train coming out of Hoosick Tunnel is like you could go there for eight hours and maybe you'll see something. <laughs> One. And you may see two go in and then you like you leave to go to the bathroom and something will go the other way. And it's like Well, Chris also uh isn't it coming up on some big anniversary of uh, the uh, L.A. Union uh, Station? Yes, the 75th anniversary for the Los Angeles Union Station is going to be this coming weekend, actually. Uh, I think it's wow. the, the second and third. Is that Saturday and Sunday? I can't re- I'm not looking at a calendar, so I can't say definitively, but I think it's the second and third. And they're having a pretty big to-do about that, honestly. It's been uh, promoted all over Los Angeles. I've been seeing banners and flyers, and I was just on the light rail the other night, and there was um, some information on that over, you know, on all the metro stations, at least the ones that I was going through. So, well, I think my wife had read that they've got a lot of people dressing up in the period clothes. Yeah. To be down there. Yeah, that, that'll be interesting to see that. Uh, you know, there was a time where they people would dress up to do the Golden Spike ceremony out in Utah, you know. And yeah. I think it's going to be a lot like that theme-wise where people will try to dress period, you know, ha- go all out with, uh, with uh, well, I wonder what period they're going to pull from because <laughs> – since it's lasted 75 years, there's so many different ways you can sort of dress up, period, for it. Well, maybe it's just sampling, or maybe it's, what was 75 years ago? 1930-something? Yeah. Yeah, that would be depressing. That's the, uh... Oh! <laughs> That's the depression! Oh. Maybe the late 20s. Yeah, okay. But, um, I don't know, I think it would be very, very neat to uh, do that. I think uh, so are you going to come out station is only like, no, I've got commitments here uh, because along that vein, the St. Louis Union Station is having some kind of big anniversary coming up. 
And I think there's only, you know, when they redid the station after Amtrak, and for a while, maybe it still is, it was shopping. Uh, but a lot of the concourse, I think there were only two tracks left out there. And I saw a photo of cars, and it said, be able to ride a train out of uh, Union Station for the first time in a whole lot of years, because I think Amtrak left by the late 70s. And it, so there was another big uh, railroad-related uh, shindig going on. So you're going to the, I love it when you sold uh, stations. Yes, I'm going to drive out. The yeah, three days and I'll be yeah. there. Awesome. Well, but it'll give me a – I'll work on some decoder installs along the way. So. Well, you know, Fullerton Railroad Days is coming up too, Paul. When is it? And then shortly after that, we're having the Fremo West Convention over in San Bernardino, the same place where we did the Western Prototype Modelers Meet. And there'll be a lot of Fremo groups there, right? Uh, well, you know, we were hoping to get a little bit more. Uh, we'll be absent some Utah. We, we, we did the first, the first ever incarnation of that. We had guys from Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, <laughs> from California and stuff. But uh, with mm-hmm. uh, Utah not being there, it's going to be pretty much uh, Arizona and California representative. So, what month? This month, uh, May, May fifteenth through the eighteenth. Ooh, ooh! I'd like to come over and see that. Uh, is it one, what weekend? Fifteenth? Yeah. Say? Well, fifteenth is a fr- Thursday. Then we're going to be running Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we're tearing down in the afternoon on Sunday. Okay. I have to see if I can uh, squeeze in a couple days. Uh, mainly, it's just I've got to get a house and pet setter if I come over there because I'm not bringing these psychopathic folks. <laughs> uh, they have to be caged and uh, beaten daily, so that's why we get this sadistic pet sitter. And uh, I made yeah, a lot of stuff happening. Well, interestingly enough, I had. You know, that uh, on the Model Railroad Hobbyist Forum, I had uh, put some video on there of minute worth of uh, sound bites of a couple different uh, locomotives I'd recently just put speakers in, ranging from tablet speakers up to the Railmaster DSM-8. And this is the one uh, when we were just chit-chatting last Friday that the Professor Kleiser got involved in. And oh, Jim, yeah. I understand you've uh, had a lot more contact with him, but the man, tell me, what what is it that the professor does professionally? Uh, he is professional sound design. Uh, and so okay. he, you know, he sets up uh, sound systems for um, – I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but he sets up sound systems for large events, you know, performing artists, things like that, you know, rock groups. But okay. he also, his company, he would, they were doing the sound um, design for uh, uh, Sochi, for the Olympics. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. Yeah. So he, at one time, the last time I heard from him, he may have had to get onto a plane and go to Sochi. So... 
Wow. Um, well, his... Uh, I don't know whether that occurred. Yeah, but. his... His response was like, you know, the one thing I was pointing out, and this was just recorded with an iPhone, but the SD40-2, there's just not a lot of room in a hood. Uh, this is an Atherin ready to run. So I put in three 16-millimeter tablet speakers, and most Atherin hoods are have a uniform width in them. The SD40, at least, does not. It's got narrower sections, and it's got, uh, you know, 18-millimeter sections. So I couldn't get the housings around the speakers. So I, you know, back and forth with uh, George up at that TVW Miniatures and ended up sealing the back of the speakers. I could only get three in, but I could get three under the exhaust fans or the uh, radiator fans. And so when I fired it up, uh, you know, the mid-range is just, there's a lot of turbo sound and stuff like that. So I started just on my own, not knowing where I was going, tweaking some of the frequencies, and I just posted a video of it. And the professor responds with uh, a spectrum, some kind of, you know, audio spectrum graph showing the uh, frequency spread where the hot spots were and all of this stuff. And so he goes, look, he said, let's, you know, my paraphrase, he was saying it very technically here. Let's uh, attenuate some of the low mid range and it'll give the amp some room to maybe breathe a little better in the, real low mid-range, what I was calling upper bass. And so I did it, and all of a sudden, you know, at idle, I was hearing this uh, 645 kind of lug up there. And so he goes, well, here, try it this way. And so I go back in, and I do it, and uh, it's just amazing what he was coming up with. And some things that, to me, were counterintuitive brought about the the uh, biggest result. Mm -hmm. He really so, knows what he's doing. He oh, oh, good heavens! Yes, he's part of. He's also part of the um, the uh, sound uh, Yahoo group. There's a Yahoo group that's just dedicated to sound model sound, okay. and um, he's really uh, seriously involved in that as well. And there's a lot of great information about doing all types of sound installs, not just in locomotives, but you know. Uh, layout sound installs and the like. Mm -hmm. The other thing that got me reevaluating was even with three of the uh, speakers there, three of these 16 millimeter tablet speakers, I've listened to uh, George Nefstadt's uh, YouTube videos where he's done four, where he is like series par paralleled four. Uh, the squarish tablet speaker, a lot of people call them sugar cubes. I think Litchfield uh, refers to theirs as sugar cubes. And I'm listening to the definition of the sound, but also the loudness of it now. And if there's no, you know, anomaly going on, then he's getting a lot more volume out of his than I am these three. Because I even created, you know, 
housing within the uh, the hood used uh, actually speaker packing to go in there and make sure it was seal off and so it's great sound is just not loud uh, so I started thinking maybe I would get better clarity out of some of my other diesels, which do have like DSM-8s, DHV 28 boxes, other versions of 28 millimeter round high bases with uh, deep enclosures on them, and especially my Kados. They were just horrendously loud, but it was not good loud. It wasn't, you know, well-defined. So... I started going through and I used the uh the SD40-2 as the as the benchmark and I kept notching or not notching but reducing uh, CV28 on these other diesels in addition to similar tweaks as the uh professor Kleiser had suggested and I went through about 10 diesels systematically on Sunday and Monday and I took the sound down and I thought, boy, this sounds good. And the the locomotive, pretty much from a sonic perspective, you know, somewhere around eight feet away, say, for instance, at the store on the railroad and building down there, it kind of fades into the background like a real diesel would. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just interesting. Uh, and I was listening again today thinking, okay, maybe – I need to bring them up, uh, typically 65 CV uh, 128 or 65, but on uh, just because of the difference in the the prime mover, the AC 4400 actually had to take it lower because of the way it was, I guess, just the characteristics of that FDL 16 uh, cylinder. But when it was idle, do you? could pick up on that kind of GE, quirky, jerky, lopey idle. Mm. And I thought, well, this sounds nice. And when it starts notching up, it uh, I went, this sounds really good. I, so I, would be, I guess what I'm saying is... I would be amazed. I've, I've never heard... AC, AC 4400s sound very peculiar. They're okay. very unique in the first notch. In the first and second notch, when you're just kind of like looping through a yard, you know. So if you're if you're yeah. taking light power and you're just loping along in the first and second notch, yeah. When you're in it, when you're in when you're in the locomotive, they sound like you're taxiing in a jet. I'm oh, not even really? kidding. It, it has a whoosh. It it it's it it it's not like it's not really. It's a much higher pitched whistle, but it sounds okay. like you're taxiing in some sort of not in a jetliner, but in a jet. It's very, and I've never heard a Dakota that does it because probably no one's, you know, standing on one when they're going in the first notch. But uh, that would be interesting if anyone ever gets a Dakota that actually does that. It's a very, and none of the other, no other locomotives do that. Just the AC 4400s. I don't know why. So it's like a turbine sound. I mean, it's what jets are. I, I, I guess. Yeah, jets, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because the the snow jet basically sounds the same. So yeah, and you know well, what I mean by Paul, snow jet. Paul, let me also add too. I think by and large, people just turn their sound way too loud. Mm. 
Yes. And, you know, after a while, it's like, give me some earplugs. Yes, this is prototypical. (laughs) Yes, your locomotive is prototypical sounding. Give me some earplugs, please, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of the guys I do installs for, he goes, yeah, he said, make it it as loud as you can. And uh, he's got a small room where his railroad is. And I said, you really want this much sound coming out of this uh, locomotive? Oh, yeah, make it loud, make it loud. So, yeah, I know what you mean, Chris. So I tried to uh, head the other way. Yeah, the louder is not always better, and it's definitely not always better fidelity. When you deal with a smaller speaker, right. you, you you might want to turn it down a little bit more and uh, just give it a little bit more room, and maybe you'll hear a little bit more actual real bass come out of it, you know. When when you have the speaker struggling so much to put out the higher frequencies or just whatever kind of frequencies that are distorting the speaker, it's not going to sound good no matter what you do. So starting off low and building up a little bit at a time till it's about right. By and large, I don't want to hear a locomotive closer than or further away than three feet. What do you guys typically set them on your Fremo, like what I saw at San Bernardino? Do you have any idea? We don't really – well, we try to mandate a standard as far as uh, what 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 sort of audible, audible distance that you can hear. And that varies just because, you know, the, the size room that you're in, how many people are there, different other factors that kind of affect, uh, you know, acoustics. So – you know, it's not such an easy thing to change in DCC either. You know, it isn't just like, oh, yeah, well, you, you tap the volume and then you turn it up or down, you know. Uh, they have to put it on a programming track. Uh, sometimes they can do it on the main. I don't know. Uh, but what I set mine to was pretty much a quiet room about four to five feet away. And that sort of equates to about three feet in a, at a Fremo setup. I even, uh, as a result of this, reevaluated. Uh, I've only got three steam locomotives, and um, I'm in the process of toning them down a little bit, uh, even though they were nowhere near as loud as those Kados and those and my uh, Genesis SD45-2s, but uh, I don't mind the exhaust barking when you've, uh, you know, you've been coasting and all of a sudden you're going to uh, increase throttle in the locomotive, the steam locomotive, you know, whoa, 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 that, so I've got some room there, but yeah, just going along, I don't want it uh, blocking out conversation. Yeah, that, so, that is rather a nuisance, and in many ways... People don't realize it. They think, oh, I'll just turn it up. But especially when you're in, like, some sort of club environment or social area, it really becomes noise pollution. Mm-hmm. What do you guys do, like, at uh, Mike Rose's uh, gym? Does he have any guidelines? Uh, uh, probably about six feet away. You know, you can hear him about six feet away. But, okay. you know, some are louder than others because he hasn't got around to them. But, you know, but by and large... It's about six feet. I was at an op session on Friday, and everything was steam. Uh, spectrum uh, consolidations and 
I think there was a Mikado as short line environment. And everything is uh, sound. And I'm three feet away from my my locomotives. And I look over at the guy. I said, John, did you forget to put speakers in this? He says, no, I like my sound low. So I hit the horn button on the steam locomotive. And it was like how I would imagine Jiminy Cricket would sound in a bus station, you know, it would just be very small. And I said, you know, you can turn these up a little bit. I said, uh, I'm not deaf, but I'm 12 inches away from the locomotive and I'm not hearing anything. He said, oh, I like it that way. And I went, okay. You know, at the end of the day, it's your trains, your house. Just so, you know, there's the other end of the spectrum. John keeps his stuff really low. <laughs> Really low. Yeah, that would irritate me. You know, you don't want them too loud, but you know, you don't want them too soft either. That's part of the. Yeah. You know, that's part of. When we did a diesel session about a month ago, I mean, even the air horns on these uh, and these were uh, dash two. uh, He's a Canadian guy, so everything's a Canadian uh, prototype, and you could just barely hear hear the air horns. And uh, I said, that's how we tell where the train is when it goes out of sight, because he's got kind of a quasi-mushroom uh, multi-level layout. And I go, I need to hear the horn to know where this thing is, because right. we operate by track warrants. I said, please, John, turn this up a little bit. I said, and I've even got my hearing aids in today, so I can't hear this. But such is life. Uh, <clears throat> fascinating uh, being able to play with the sound now have either one of you guys heard the new uh tcs wow sound yeah i've only seen it i've only heard it as far as like youtube there was like a demonstration done in youtube and it was pretty fantastic i think he did it with a comparison not only between the wow sound but also with the iphone speaker something like that oh okay i was thinking uh i've not heard one in the flush, I have. And uh, okay, what do you think, well, it's, Jimmy? It's very cool, uh, and it's actually the only one that the professor likes because okay, and explain because it's it's explain CD that. quality sound. It's the okay. only decoder that's CD quality sound, so um, it sounds really good, and then it has a lot of really cool features. So. Um, you know, the, it's, it dynamically adjusts for load and it has a, it has a working brake. Um, you know, and you can apply it, you know, you can gradually apply it. There's like 10 settings to the brake. So, and then, and then you know the brakes will start to squeal and the engine starts to slow down even though you're even though you you're still power you're still powering so it's not it hasn't turned the throttle mm-hmm. off it's just braking I don't know how quite how it does it but uh, and then the you know uh, and a lot of the other things that uh, tsunamis do but you know the the with the angle cocks the, in, not the angle cocks but the the you know as they're starting up they're blowing off the steam it'll do that for as long as you want but the thing that i was really impressed with was you know he's got he gets the thing going up to speed and then he just presses down on the locomotive 
and really starts to bark. You know, the uh, just the load on the locomotive, it all, you know, it just changes the, how it's responding. Uh, it's a lot of really cool features and just sounds great. Okay. So it was in Steam, you, right? That yes. You heard? That's the only thing they have right now is Steam. Oh, okay. They, I thought they had since come out with diesel, but just well, right I mean, now. Okay. maybe they have. I don't know. Uh, I don't know either. Check. We've got some in the store. I guess I should open up the case and look and see what Bob brought in. Okay. Let's see. That's not it. Uh, let's see. Google. Oh, you know what? I really think that uh, a lot of decoder manufacturers are kind of like setting their sights on is how the thing handles, you know, as far as like how so? the, the the operating characteristics mixed in with how it sounds at the same time rather than just like it starts moving and you hear the prime mover ramp up after it, you know? Okay. I think it's kind of like coming down to a, they're, they're looking at how the real ones move and sound at the same time. Okay. So you're saying like at idle, uh, Jim lets off the, uh, the, the brake and just the residual current to the traction motors at idle will start the locomotive creeping forward, especially if it's light. You know, and then the throttle kicks yeah, in. Yeah, you know, I seen something. I, I was doing a comparison between Roots Blower 645 type engines for an SD38-2. I want to do, and I was comparing the the Tsunamis, the Loke sounds, and you know, I forgot the other one I was checking out, um, but. I really liked how the Loke sound handled what I saw in the video. It would start creeping, and then you'd hear this, brrr, you know, the prime mover blowing, you know, ramping up, and then it'd start moving faster. I'm like, you know, that is how it handled that that operation is really, really, uh, really realistic to me. Because I have uh, just one Atlas with sound, and it's, it's the... Uh... Turbocharge the uh, 567, I guess it is, and the uh, SDP35, and it's got a QSI in it. And one of their options is a regular, what they're calling a regulated throttle, which they say mimics prototypical uh, handling of locomotives. And you got to admit, it's, it's, it threw me off first time I put it down there and uh, I was went to speed step one and two, and there was no difference in sound, but the locomotive just started perceptively creeping forward. And then the RPMs came up, the, you know, the sound came up. And depending on how far I had cranked open the throttle, then correspondingly there was that kind of a labored uh, prime mover sound, and it kept on notching. And it was, I thought, wow, this is this is really neat. I like the way that was thought out, very realistic. So I use it on a secondary mail train. I don't think the UP's uh, SDP-35 has ever had a passenger operation, per se, so I've got it on a mail train, all kinds of mail cars and stuff. But it just, I like watching and listening to it. This sounds neat. I'm easy to please. Where'd you find Jimmy? Uh, they only make steam. Okay. All but, right. Um, I'm sure they've got it in the 
plans. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure they've got diesel in the plans. That's you know, I'm sure they do eventually. Yeah. When I operate, there was actually a fascinating conversation over on the Proto Layouts uh, Yahoo group about sound and you know how people use decoders to mimic what. You know, some people like the manual notch, and some people use momentum, and some people use the uh, brake feature on the uh, tsunamis. What I like to do, when I'm switching with at, at uh, my Groses, when I have a single unit, because it really only works with a single unit, you apply the brake, and then I'll crank the thing up to the eighth notch. And you sit there for a second, and then you pop the brake. And with the momentum, it just gradually starts speeding up, and then you turn the throttle down. So you don't go shooting off at a million miles an hour. Because normally, when you're switching on the prototype, particularly if you're, you know, into a, a bunch of heavy cars, you know, you'll throttle up to the 6th, 7th, 8th notch to try to get it moving. And then you, then the engineer will throttle back. You don't you don't gradually start moving and having the thing ramp up. That's the, one of the problems that why I understand why some people like the manual notch because then you can mimic what actually occurs and you actually notch and then start moving. The problem with it is then you're trying to do two controls at once. You know, you're trying to think about notching and making the locomotive go, which is kind of irritating. Okay. Um, and I know there's a lot of interesting features on the Loc Sound, which I'm not familiar with uh, particularly. Um, the biggest thing, when I was at uh, Cocoa Beach and I was talking to the guy from Loc Sound, I'm kind of critical about 645 turbos because I've done a lot of rail fanning around, you know, my, all basically – all rail fanning I've ever been, I've ever done, you know, you it's you're around GP40s, SD40s, all these things, and you you know you're into Hatchapi. When you're into Hatchapi and you hear the cans coming in 1994, that's ten or mm-hmm. ten or twelve SD40s coming up the hill at 20. They they make a very distinctive howl. It's a, it's you know I've stood. You know, 20 feet away from four GP40-2s as they throttle up. I know what they sound like. Um, well, you actually bring up a good point. Let me just interject something. I'll be real quick about it, Jim. I apologize. I don't mean to interrupt your thought either. Um, it's sort of when you have that many locomotives together, it's sort of a chant. We call yep. it like the EMD chant standing up there yep. and Tatch would be uh, over at Wolong yes. kind of looking down the canyon. Yep. Right, and they and they they kind of uh, okay uh, they kind of sing together. Yeah, you know, you get you get a chorus. That's a good way to put it. You get a chorus of the locomotives, and it they the sound of a six forty five in the eighth notch kind of drops into a low it it it's a lower octave. Once it hit the eighth notch and starts to pull, it drops an octave. And when I was listening to the Loke sound in Cocoa Beach, you could hear, I could hear it go six, you know, five, six, seven, and it never really went into the eighth notch that I remember. You know, it didn't go down into the, the howl. And um, I comment, I says, the eighth notch isn't right. Sorry, but 
says, I, I would never buy that until the eighth notch is right. And he, what he said was, he says, we made two recordings. And we have one guy that does the mixing. And so it was either, I think it was Intermountain wanted the recording that they came out with. And it was not the one that was under load. Oh, and so, okay. yeah, the one yeah, under load, the one under load is the one that they're hoping to put into the Bowser SD40-2. So there's two different recordings. So hopefully they'll get the quote unquote issue. And I'm probably the only one complaining about it. Um, with no, actually, I, I, I noticed that too, Jim. Back you okay, up yeah, it, it gets into the yeah, it just like it just flattens out in the in the top notches. It flat everything else is magnificent. I mean, I love the spitter valve. It has like various variable spitter valves. It that's really cool. Uh, the spitter valve will continue spitting for like a minute after the engine shuts down, which is cool. The bells are great. The horn is great. All of the little features around the decoder are great. It's just the thing that you that is most impressionable when you're standing trackside, watching a train pull up a hill next to you, is the eighth notch. If a I decoder, if a, if, if a 645 turbo doesn't have the right eighth notch, pfft, I, you yeah, know, yeah, the, especially for anybody that's been around the hatchby and heard those things yeah. just sort of like. Shoot sparks out of their exhaust stack. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what a, a one under load and pulling for all of its worth is gonna yeah. sound like. You know. Yeah, I mean, when you when you see the guys in the pushers, and he's you know he's got the uh, he's got the the uh, the the selector all the way forward, and he's sitting back reading a, reading a book. You know, cause, you know, the throttle's all the way forward, and he's reading a book because there ain't nothing he can do. It's just push. <laughs> It doesn't go to 11. It only goes to 8. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's get this one. It goes all the way to 11. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is spinal. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. That's great. <laughs> Even though the Tsunami is not was not recorded under load, the Tsunami for the 645 Turbo was not recorded under load. It does, however, drop into the howl. On the eighth notch, when you okay. when you get it into the eighth notch, the problem is it's really hard to get a model locomotive into the eighth notch. Most low, Jim, most, how most. The, how did the dynamic brake stance of you? Speaking of how, I made a comment. Uh, one of the other things on the um, <laughs> on that same list, they were talking about what Mike Confalone does on his uh, on his decoders. Is he changes the dynamic brake, the F four? He changes that. So that you can drift, because his locomotive, none of his locomotives have dynamics. So when when you press the dynamic brake button on it on a tsunami decoder, it drops it, it drops the locomotive into idle. So it drops the thing into idle. And so what he's done is he's turned down the dynamic brake sound in for the F4 button. And so as you're like dr as you're drifting along in a yard track. You just hit the F4 button, and the, the thing drops into idle, and you drift along. And then if you want to throttle back up, you just hit the F4 again. So you can get a, a kind of an interesting way to control the sound that way. And my comment was, 
I have no problem with that because I've never heard a decoder that actually sounds like a dynamic break. It says when you hear dynamic breaks, you hear the fans. You hear the fans and they go, it's a, it's a really obnoxious howl. And particularly you can hear it in Tehachapi when they're going down the loop, going around the corner. I mean, I have some great video and the things are howling and I've never heard a decoder that doesn't sound anything like like yeah it sounds like a haunted house you know the yeah. that just like groaning moaning howl that comes yeah. out of a dynamic break that yeah it just never has been reproduced in a sound decoder ever and yeah. it's just not something you can do with one button it's one of those things that you can do if you use manual notching to control your dynamic break much like what the real ones do you know, if, louder if howl, did. less howl. You know, right? But you you would have to manually control that. But they'd also have to control the it's the exhaust fan, the, the radiator, not the radiator fan, but it's the cooling fan that you hear. It's not the dynamic per se. You know, it's it's just that those they get so hot that the fan. I mean, it sounds very much like the fans on on the uh, the double decker coaches that I deal with. The AC fans sound very similar when the things are just sitting there. I mean, they don't obviously don't go up and down, but I mean, I mean, it's a great. I can find the video of the the train coming down the loop and having to stop at that signal before the tunnel at the loop. Oh yeah, that you know the event recorder. That's the guy you want to search for on YouTube, and he has probably one of the best sets of uh, Tehachapi videos, he actually starts the video off with just like the title and that EMD chant sound as you hear those things struggle up the grade. And I haven't heard it in a real long time, and it was just actually gave me goosebumps. It was just <laughs> like, there's that sound. No yeah. one's got it yet. <laughs> you know? nope. Well, I mean, even here, you know, when we would hear, when I would go rail fan on the Boston and Maine, uh, there's some pretty decent grades on the Boston and Maine, and they basically had all GP40s, you know, GP40s, SD26s. I mean, admittedly, that's not the same thing, but, you know, a turbocharged 30, you know, 567 sounds similar, not the same. But, and so, you know, you're having four or five GP40s pulling up a hill sounds essentially the same. It's similar, right. not the same. Nothing sounds like the cans. Nothing. Yeah, yeah the, never the heard. tunnel motors had the big fans for the radiators yeah. too, yeah. which is pretty distinctive. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember you're on the top. I forget what the tunnel is. What's the tunnel on the top of the loop? I think it's you, 10. you know what the tunnel ten. So when you yeah. stand, when yeah, you're standing the one on that, Marcel and Walong is ten, I think, and then Tunnel Nine okay. is the one that goes over itself. Okay, so when you're on the mountain that overlooks the loop. Not the one in the middle of the loop, but the one that overlooks the loop. You could hear the cans coming up the valley. Right. That's and, my favorite spot. <laughs> yeah. And so you'd hear you'd hear the howl. You know, when it was, you know, however many miles away, you'd hear the howl and it would go, huh, and then it would go behind a hill. Yeah. And then you hear it, huh, and it would go behind another hill. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, then, and then, then it was just constant as it was coming. Yeah. And, yeah, then, then it would... You know, because I've got the video of, you know, all the beacons going. It was seriously cool. Uh, I'm glad oh, I yeah. caught it before uh, 
because I was in there in 94. I was there, I, I was just showing the, the pictures to Mike Rose, and he said, I've never seen the, um, I actually have pictures of the the Southern Pacific SD-70s, shiny. Oh, yeah. You know, like, bright, like, out of the paint shop. They were, like, just out of the paint shop. That's when I saw them. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, they were brand new at that point. Fresh oh, out yeah. of uh, London, Ontario back then. Well, when you head north, you're going towards Cajon, right? And then to Hatchapi's further, is that where it is? Hatchapi's further north, yeah. Yeah. Never been there? Frame I've reference. been... I, I spent seven days in California, and all seven days were on Tad. Didn't go anywhere else. And it was a good time, actually. Fantastic time. Unfortunately, um, you probably won't recognize it today, and a lot of what was cool about the SP operation through there, like the manned helpers and, you know, yep. going through, like, Kern Junction and kind of seeing what the lineup was. And it, it, a lot of that's gone, and a lot of that is not – accessible anymore as far as mm -hmm. i know uh you could go up to a couple lookout areas from what i've heard and look down onto the loop but you can't actually go up next to the tracks at the loop anymore really at the ranch yep yep really the ranch closed it closed it or are they the yeah, or union pacific has closed it really yep hmm. interesting i never really liked it down there i preferred the overlook myself but yeah, it, uh, it, it, it's kind of like watching model trains from the Overlook, honestly. Oh yeah, absolutely. I saw a lot of the pictures, like going over the um, the river, you know, because no, it's not a river, but the the bridge leading up to the loop before it gets to the uh, tunnel. Yeah, the creek yeah. there. Yeah, that creek. That's it. I mean, and I have pictures of uh, plenty of trains going, and they look just like model trains. You know, when you're when you when you're going along the highway there, and the trains are snaking through the tunnels right along the highway, they look like model trains. So, O scale model trains at that point, but you know. Well, you know, Paul, you should really just try to go yeah. up to uh, the loop. I mean, when you're in Pasadena, it's no more than a two hour trek up uh, up the five, and then over uh, up and over the five, and then swing on over the I think it's the forty one or something. Oh, okay. It, it, it's worth it's worth the trip. Yeah. Just what you, the places where I go now are like Caliente. Yep. Uh, it, there's a nice safe place you could go up to the post office there and watch a train pretty much turn its direction like three times mm -hmm. coming down that mountain. Um, it's it's really impressive and it it it, it sort of gets you inspired to do mountain railroading, you know. Oh yeah, I, I looked at I looked at my photographs. I'm like, man, I'd love to model the SP, but which is kind of what I want to do, but not the same. You know, I would I want to do one of the things, the projects I want to do. I want to find a, an SW fifteen hundred that I can spend some quality time with measuring, and um, I would want to make a shell so that. It'll fit on the Atlas SW9 frame, kind of like the old carry shells did. Uh huh. And because the basically the SW9 in O scale is the is about the best mechanism you can get. And if you can get it, I would like an SP prototype SW1500. And I guess those, although they were the most numerous, there aren't very many of them left. Um, but I have some 
people trying to make phone calls to see if I can get some to get to one to measure it. But it, you know, to measure an SW fifteen hundred is going to take like a day or two. So it's not like I can just are, go. Are you going to do uh, uh, like the doors and all that on? Um... Yes. Yep. So you're going to do three D and then three uh, D printed. Uh, honestly, I, I have a possibility of maybe um, injection molding it, so I kind of would like to make this a an, a product, but who knows? If not, if that doesn't work, then I would 3D print it. It ain't going to be cheap, but if it's only one for me, I've got to, I have the mechanism. There's a <laughs> lot of things. around the mechanism there. Yeah, the other thing, the other possibility is to, just to make an entire locomotive, but I don't know. I, you know, I don't even know what I don't know. Yeah, well, well, why reinvent the wheel? Kind of literally on this one. Why reinvent the wheels? More likely. Yeah. I mean, I have I have mechanism, and it's already converted. It's converted to to you know P forty eight. All I'd have to do is put the shell on it. The uh, difference is is I'd have to get the the flexicoil trucks, uh, which theoretically uh, Atlas makes, but of course they don't have any. Hey. Whether they make, whether they make them, or whether they don't, they don't have any. Are Are you going to put sound in that one, uh, Jim? Do you think if you go I'd DCC with it? Oh, it's going to be DCC. I'd also like to put battery power in it. Yep, because although I have figured out how to solder to steel rail, the, the turnout. I'm. Have you guys seen the pictures of the turnout I'm working out on? You showed us uh, details of. Parts of it that you're making on Shapeways. Okay, right. but you haven't actually seen the, the turnout under construction. No, you need to post some pictures on uh, Facebook or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have so many groups I post this foolishness on. Well, golly, you got to make time for our, for our yeah. podcast Facebook. Oh, page. man. I mean, come on. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. I post some of it right now. Just got to bear the burden and carry through. I mean, I don't know if you know of any... Southern Pacific SW-1500s hanging around. I would no. check. Look at look into the Genesee, Wyoming operations. Hmm. They seem to have picked up a lot of stuff. And then there's also NRE out in Illinois. Um, they might be a little bit more friendly to interaction, too, from people taking measurements and stuff. Yeah, the other thing I thought of is... Um it used to be the Blue Mountain and Redding, but it's the Redding and Northern has got two of them. And from what I've heard, they're fairly friendly. So Yeah, that that would be a good place to go. A lot of those SW-1500s, uh, when they started coming up for grabs, uh, a lot of railroads all around the country kind of started going, ooh, cheap uh, switching power that's uh, relatively more modern than this, you know, 1,000-year-old GE 70 tonner. Yeah, let's go for it. Right. Know. But, you know, I, I think a switching layout with a couple of uh, S, SP, SW-1500s would be cool. Well, you can always invite the, the listeners to go to our Facebook page and leave a comment if they know where some are. Jim's in New England, so if you know somewhere within a day's drive, drop him a note on the Facebook page. Right. Uh, I mean, I know supposedly the New England Central's got one. It used to be in Palmer, and I last I've heard, it, it may be up in St. Albans in the shop, which is went from one hour away to God only knows. You know, Did the Pan Am pick up any uh, SW-1500s <laughs> from the SP? Oh, that's... I'm going to take that as skeptical. 
um, whether they did or whether they didn't. Uh, the you know the Pan Am is kind of like they just well slit slit a uh, rail fan's throat as look at them. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the U- the Union Pacific is probably friendlier. We'll put it that way. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, really? No kidding. Uh huh. That's an indictment. Yeah. Uh, I guess one of the the railroad up, there's a railroad up in Maine that's got one. Some in South Carolina. The, um, the, actually, the New York, New Jersey Railroad, which does the car float operations into Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, they've got a Southern Pacific one. They've got two locomotives, and one of them happens to be a Southern Pacific, um, XUP. Southern Pacific um, SW1500, but I want to go to Brooklyn about as much as I want to drill a hole in my head. <laughs> uh, you know, even if they were friendly, I'm not sure whether the locals would be not be might be interested in some. Hey, man, what you doing? How much money? Yeah, nice camera. I'm glad it's mine now, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go away. Oh, we'll take your car too. Oh, thanks. Well, so, I'm looking, doing a quick little search for SP stuff here for you, as far okay. as like uh, SW1500s. Because I I found I got these oh the GM scrapbook from Comeback, which has drawings of SW1500s in it. But realistically, if I'm doing a 3D model of this thing, I really need like measurements. I need to go to it and measure it. It's not a drawings per se. I don't think are going to help me very much. Right. Um, this is just my view. But. Yeah, well, let's see here. CITX, that's a leasing company. Apparently right. they got some. GATX has some. Yes, they sure do. Yeah. Well, I mean, Genesee, Wyoming has some. Yeah. I don't know if like, B&T or far whatever closest of their affiliates of Bayou that might have one, but I know they right. have they some have, somewhere. They're Right, but they're kind of far flung, so figuring out where they happen to be is yeah. a little, you know, tricky. Yeah. Well, I, I can guarantee you that there's hardly any in California anymore. At least in Southern California, there are none. Yeah, it, it's just the emissions standards are so rigid yeah. here now. As far as that, you, you just don't see things of that sort of uh, delivery date <laughs> anymore around mm-hmm. here. You, lo, you're lucky to see 80s built SD60s anymore out here. It seems like really, so, yeah. It, it's they, at least in Southern California, I've heard about things of uh, you know deturbative charge locomotives and things in Northern. Um, I'm I'm not living up there, so I don't really know firsthand. But down here, there's it's all it's mostly Gen sets and Tier Four type locomotives. It seems like that's depressing. It is because all the cool stuff stops over in, in Barstow or Yuma, it seems like, and sent back. <laughs> so if you go onto the Facebook group, I just posted a bunch of photos. I've got a uh, question for you, Chris. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit. Now that you're our main inside man at at uh, Athern, you are. Yep. Oh, okay. Chris is. Okay. Chris is our main in at and okay, so around the company, the obvious question, is it Athern or Athern? It's Athern. 
Okay. Okay, very good. I always want Aether, but Aether, there, horse's mouth, people. We've heard it from an Atherin guy. <laughs> All right. So how do I get the tinder apart on a big boy? Um, I, don't. I don't know. <laughs> He's a diesel but you're guy. welcome Why to call our product this? support at the 800 number on the website. They answer questions oh, like yeah. that? You'll probably end up speaking to Dave. He's our product support. And, um, yeah, he'll... Uh, he might send you over to um, uh, an instruction sheet or give you a couple tips about um, where to pull the screws out, if there are some. I just don't know how the thing goes together. Okay. Well, and I've got the, you know, it was new in the box, so all the literature's in there. But I'm looking at the exploded drawings, and I'm going, okay, where is the how to take the body off? So anyway, on the instructions, there was nothing like that. And the number I ordered, you know, because they sold out and I wasn't going to get it. And then a customer canceled and he had ordered 4,005. And it comes with an oil tender instead of a coal tender. And it turns out that 4,005 was the only one that very briefly was retrofitted with an oil tender. And apparently, for whatever reason, UP didn't think the the conversion was worth the time and effort. So it you know, eventually made its way back into coal because UP had a lot of uh, coal on their property and stuff. So, and it's not that I want to change it from oil to coal; is I want to upgrade the speakers that are in there. I'm sure there's two 28 uh, millimeter speakers in there, but I'm just going to go with. Uh, maybe one of the uh, higher base units from Railmasters and a, maybe a bigger enclosure. Well, there's two speakers. I just got to see how much room's in there around the, the board and stuff. And I just didn't want to start tearing into this locomotive blindly. So I thought Chris could tell me, but I'll call Dave at Products. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Okay, because I also want to take the boiler off. I noticed underneath those big twin stacks, there's room for smoke units, and I don't want to put smoke in, but I'm wondering how big of a speaker I can get beneath the stacks that I could uh, wire in parallel, just so I've got some sound coming from the front of the locomotive. Uh huh. So I thought I would just, before I weather it and all that stuff, I thought I would take a look-see just before, and then... If I can, I can. If I can, I can. It's okay. I mean, it looks good coming up the Rock Canyon, uh, same place where I took the video of the uh, Allegheny H8, which is, interestingly enough, the, usually the other locomotive people talk about when they talk about who made the biggest steam. It was bigger the H8 or the uh, uh, Big Boy, and then sometimes even the uh, DM&IRs, uh, Yellowstones, gets into that conversation. Uh, I was telling my wife, I said, Hey, I ended up getting the big boy. And she goes, oh, yeah, you can imagine how excited she was. <laughs> and, and I said, yeah. And I said, do you remember in 1973 when we first went to uh, St. Charles, Missouri with, with ACF, a friend of yours and her husband, we went to a, a tabletop, weekend tabletop session out in St. Charles. And 
I said, remember the locomotive I bought? And, yeah, she's going, oh, yeah, yeah, I made notes on that. And actually, it was an AHM big boy, number 4005. And I said, see, life comes full circle, you know, from the uh, piece of cuttered uh, AHM uh, big boy now to the Genesis big boy with a tsunami. And she just pats me on the back and goes, I'm so happy your life is complete now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> she just, she, you know, the sarcasm just dripping off. And then, you know, she smiles and winks. It was just. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, pretty soon you're going to have to get, get the one with wow sound, right? Because you got to have, you know, CD quality coming out of your, your big. Well, according to uh, the Professor Kleiser and uh, seconded by <laughs> James Lincoln, I think they're going to have yeah, to Yeah, you know, they're going to do the one with the uh, Proto 87 wheels and drivers so everything's yeah <laughs> the model's more accurate and then wow sound coming out of it but it won't be able to roll on any of your track until you upgrade that to proto 87 too yes yes right. uh, looking forward to that <laughs> now jim just a back step is that uh the professor's uh preference is because the bit rate is higher is that what the critical element is 16 bit yeah, or something yes no, it's CD. Well, it's, Tsunami's 16-bit. Yeah, it's it's probably 32 at least. It's CD sound, so it's, I don't know what the number is, but it's true CD quality like, sound. Well, I want you to know by the next time we have a podcast. Uh, I know. Oh, right. Google, don't fail me now. <laughs> <laughs> Google. Crying CD out loud. 44,100 samples per second at 16-bit revolution. So it's the sample rate more than the bit rate. Oh, okay. Yeah. 44,100 samples per second. Okay, because I only do the podcast at uh, 22,000. Right. Because it just takes up less space on the servers. Otherwise, you know, when we transition to 5.1 sound, then I'll uh, we'll go up to the 44.1. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, yeah, Joe said it's in the budget for next year. Okay. I said, good. I, let me let the guys know. So we're uh -huh. going to be in high so, definition or something? Yes, we'll be doing high-def 1080p video podcast. So, oh, video podcasts. You mean we'll, we'll, we'll actually be able to get on the camera here and scare people with our, uh, our beautiful look? That's right. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. See, I don't know about – you probably got no problems, Chris. It might be Paul that has some issues, but – <laughs> oh, 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 it could be. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, you know, you've heard me talk about when we go to breakfast, all the railroad guys, we get a village in on Wednesday morning, so it's tomorrow morning, but it's down on Surprise, and Surprise is just where civilization ends between Arizona and California, U.S. Route 60 through there, if you take that. The Route 60, the good news is you follow the old Santa Fe line, and the bad news is you are your only company is cactus, you know, so you better carry extra gas. And uh, so, but that's where the Phoenix line comes in from up north. And so usually when we're there eating breakfast, you get there early so you can face, sit at the table facing the track because typically there's three trains in that hour and a half. Uh, Two inbounds and an outbound. Topsy, copsy, and then a mixed freight. And, uh, 
you know, the guys that get there late have got to turn around because they're on the chairs facing the pie counter, not the tracks. But if non-railroad people sit in the booth by the windows, we have to go over and impose upon them to open the blinds. What do you mean the sun's in your eyes? we got to see the train. Open the blinds, you know. Here, put these sunglasses on. So, it's nice you even give them sunglasses. Yeah. <laughs> here, here, where are my ball caps? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we open the window? Just there's more of us than they are. You get out of here. Get out of the pool. That's right. There's up to twenty of us. Yeah. So, so you so. loan them your uh, your your Terminator style sunglasses that you wear after you got your cataract surgery, there, Paul. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just I'd be back. Get my sunglasses, but or hey, can I buy you a piece of pie? Open that blind and. Pick any pie out of the menu. I'm buying you a piece of pie to go with your scrambled eggs. Now they have, uh, I mean, if you're going to do serious pie at Village Inn, you're going for one of the, like, peanut butter cream or silk, one of the silks or something like that. I mean, there's just who knows how many aggregate count or calories there are in that. Just Now I'm, you know, I, anyway. But anyway, so, yeah, once this thing saves, which will be in, like, a couple of hours, so tomorrow I'll try to remember to send this thing. I'll just put this up on Dropbox. Yeah. Very good. All right. Okay. Well, Jimmy, go get some sleep. Yes. I get to go to work tomorrow. Hope to do. <laughs> Yay. Yeah.